we are here for a very serious conference. And someone at lunch was asking me, they were telling me about a relative that they're very concerned about. can't remember whether it was a brother, brother-in-law, some, something on that order. And he's being pulled into Calvinism uh, at the church uh, he's going to. And he's going to a Southern Baptist church. She says, is it possible that he's being taught that at his church? And the answer is yes. 40% of the Southern Baptist churches in America have embraced Calvinism. That is largely due to Southern Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. Southern Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky is the largest Southern Baptist seminary there is. There are other Southern Baptist seminaries, but Southern Seminary is the largest. In fact, it is the largest seminary in the world. They have about 2,800 to 2,900 students at Southern Seminary. And the president of uh, the seminary, Out Muller, is a committed Calvinist. And when he came to the seminary and took over his presidency, he demanded that the, all the professors uh, adhere to Calvinistic belief and all left except for two. And he had two professors left and everyone that he brought in to fill those vacancies were committed to uh, Reformed theology. And so he is a Southern Baptist embracing Reformed theology. If they're teaching that in the seminaries, the young men come into the churches and it filters down to the people in the pew and the people in the pew begin to embrace the tenets of Calvinism. And so yes, it is taking place in the Southern Baptist churches. Reformed theology, I'll just give you a little uh, history a, a little bit here. Uh, Reformed theology traditionally has been held to uh, by uh, Presbyterian churches. You know, Presbyterian churches believe in Reformed theology. Congregational churches held to Reformed uh, theology. Uh, we have some uh, community churches across America that are adhering to Reformed theology. Uh, we have some Bible churches holding to Reformed theology, not to say that all Bible churches do, okay? And uh, because they don't, but some of our Bible churches uh, hold to it. Some of our Baptist churches hold to Reformed theology, and some even in the independent Baptist circles now hold to Reformed theology. And uh, it really appeals to uh, the seminarians. You know, because they, they think they really know something in seminary and appeals to the intellect. And so they begin uh, reading people like John MacArthur. They read people like uh, John Piper. They read people like R.C. Sproul. And, uh, and all those are big-name people into Reformed theology or Calvinistic teaching. Uh, you, would, you would be better off, just let me tell you a simple truth, you'd be better off never ever to pick up a book by John MacArthur. And if you never read a book by John MacArthur in all your life, you're not missing anything, okay? Because he'll steer you wrong. He'll steer you wrong in two ways. Uh, he embraces lordship salvation, which is a false view of the gospel, and he embraces reformed theology. And so you would just be better off not to, to uh, grab hold of his writings, grab hold of his books. I understand what he, uh, people say about John MacArthur. They call him the premier Bible teacher in America. And he is a very good communicator. He's an excellent communicator as far as that's concerned but he's teaching wrong doctrine. And we'll see at the end of this session here this afternoon, Lord willing, if we get that far, if we all don't fall asleep, including the speaker. We'll see at the end of it the biblical position that we are to take toward anyone that's teaching that which is false. But I just issue a warning. Most of the books that are in our bookstores today 
are, are, are people that you need to stay away from. I mean that sincerely. And you can ask your pastor about it and, uh, and he'll tell you, please, don't read MacArthur. Please, don't read uh, Piper. Piper will pull you into Calvinism in a heartbeat. And he really appeals to the young people, the college-age young people around this nation. He, he, in this nation, he has huge conferences where he'll have 10,000 college students that will attend those conferences. And he's just espousing Calvinism. And, and they're just uh, swallowing it. They're, they're, they're grasping at it. I think part of the reason for uh, the influx in it is the demise of solid, biblical, doctrinal, clear teaching in our churches. And, uh, you know, our churches have gotten away from teaching the Bible and really emphasizing doctrine and being clear in what's being communicated. And, uh, and so some of these guys come along and they are very clear in what they're communicating. The problem is they're communicating error. And so it just appeals to a lot of people. So that, that's just a little history of what's taking place in our nation right now. When we talk about the dangers of it, it's, it's real. We're serious about that. When we say it's on the rise, uh, we are serious about that. It is on the rise. And, uh, and it is very concerning to us. And uh, there are a lot of things that's causing us to lose this nation. And, uh, and false gospel messages is a huge part of that. And, uh, and we don't need that. R.C. Sproul would be another one that you would want to stay away from. And there are, are others as well. But those are just some of the big names that you'll see out in the uh, bookstores. And, uh, and so I give that to you. I, and I give you that for free. I don't charge you a word for that, a penny for that, okay? All right. Ephesians uh, chapter 2 in your Bibles, if you would, please. Uh, we are here for this conference. And really, the purpose of our conference is really uh, threefold. I'm here to warn you about the false system of theology known as Calvinism, which I just did. Gave you some warning, some admonition there. I'm here to educate you and instruct you in the major components of Calvinism's false teachings. But most importantly, I'm here to take the Bible and show you the truth. Because remember, Jesus said, it is the truth that shall set you what? Free. And the best way to be protected against error is a thorough knowledge of the truth. You don't have to have a thorough knowledge of Calvinism to be protected from its false doctrine. You need a thorough knowledge of the truth. So that when the error comes along, it just sort of sticks out like a sore thumb. You know what I'm saying? Because you know the truth so well. And it is the truth that will set you free. Well, you know, we're building here throughout the week and we'll build throughout the week. And this morning we were dealing uh, in the Sunday school hour on a lesson about, um, you know, our message. Understanding our message. And we began with that because I wanted all of you to be on the same page with me. When I talk about the Gospel and I talk about salvation, I wanted you to understand where I'm coming from. And so we looked at five foundational truths of the Gospel message in the uh, Sunday school hour, uh, the morning service, three questions that if you answer them biblically will refute the whole idea of, uh, of Calvinism. Uh, now here this afternoon, I want to give a message that I've titled, Dead But Able. Very simple. Dead but what? Able. Say that with me. Dead but able. And that's what we're going to look at here uh, this afternoon. Uh, I'll give you a heads up of where we're headed in the uh, conference. Uh, we're going to give a message on uh, who are the elect. And I believe that's going to be tomorrow night. Who are the elect? And then we're going to give a message on what is biblical predestination. That'll be Tuesday night. What is biblical predestination? And I'm yet to decide 
uh, exactly the direction of how we'll climax this. Because really, uh, you know, I'm here for basically six messages. And those messages aren't even an hour. So if they were an hour, let's just say they were, but they're not. Uh, if they lasted for an hour, you would have six hours worth of instruction on Calvinism. I just spent last week giving 12 hours of instruction on Calvinism. And when I left the Bible Institute, there were still things to be taught about Calvinism. So, uh, you know, you, you pray for me and by Wednesday night, I'll know exactly the direction that we need to head in that final message. But I believe Pastor Ling has, has, has told you folks that he's going to allow you to ask questions Wednesday night. So we'll have a question and answer session. So, you know, Wednesday night, who knows when we'll go home. And, uh, you know, we may stay here till midnight uh, answering questions. Well, I don't know. Well, probably not because most of you go home before then. All right, let's stand. Ephesians chapter 2 in your Bibles, please. Ephesians chapter 2. Remember, Calvinists have a faulty view of God's sovereignty, a faulty view of man's depravity, a faulty view of Christ's atonement or death on the cross, and whether or not a man possesses the ability to accept or reject the Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. And you have he quickened who were, what's the word? Dead. Dead. Now, folks, we're in Tennessee. And you have he quickened which were? Dead. Dead. Do it right the first time. We don't have to do it again. Dead in what? Verse 2 says, Where in times past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. Let's pray. Father, You've given us a good day and we thank You so much for what You've done thus far. And Father, we pray that in this hour You would help us to be able to communicate clearly the truths that You would want taught to this group of people that would help protect them and preserve them from error. Lord, I thank You that You're a God of truth. In fact, the Bible tells us that You're the God of all truth. And Lord, we thank You that we can have confidence in You Realizing, Lord, that everything You would ever tell us and everything You would say in Your Word would be truth that we could build and base our lives upon. We praise You. We thank You for that. Give us Your help now, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. you. May be seated. It is really unfortunate that in the field of theology in history past, there was a time in America where you were taught that you were either a Calvinist or an Armenian. I was taught that when I went to Bible college. Now, I went to Bible college in 1970. Oh, that was a long time ago, wasn't it? Almost in the Dark Ages. Not quite, but almost. It was a long time ago. And when I went to Bible college in 1970... I was introduced to Calvinism. I was introduced to Armenianism. And prior to that time, I had never heard either one of them. I trusted Christ as my Savior as a 16-year-old teenager. And shortly thereafter, I went to Bible college. And so I knew very, very little when I first went to Bible college. Talk about someone that was green about most everything. I'm sitting in classes and 
these teachers are talking about things that I didn't have the slightest clue what they were talking about. And so when we got to class and one day we were in this contemporary theology class. Well, that sounds interesting, doesn't it? Contemporary theology. I was in it because it was required. And we're sitting there and the guy comes up and he starts talking about Calvinism and he starts talking about Arminianism. He says, historically speaking, here in America, one has either been a Calvinist or an Armenian. And he says, now Calvinists are people who believe in salvation by grace and they believe you can't lose your salvation. And Armenians are people who believe in salvation by your works and your salvation can be lost. So I'm just sitting here listening to what he has to say. And I'm sitting out there thinking, well, I don't believe in salvation by works. That's what I thought when I was lost <laughs> before I was saved. I don't believe that. I don't believe salvation can be lost. I didn't get it by what I do. I don't keep it by what I do. I'm kept by the power of God. So I said, well, I don't believe that. And Calvinists, they believe in salvation by grace. Well, I believe in salvation by grace. They believe in the security of the believer. You can't lose your salvation. Well, I must be, I must be, I must be. Which one are you? Calvinist. But then, I began to get exposed to what Calvinists really believe. The tulip. Total depravity slash inability. Unconditional election. Limited atonement. Irresistible grace. Perseverance of the saints. And I began to realize I didn't believe any of those things. I didn't believe any of the tenets of Calvinism. If you ever had the opportunity from the sword of the Lord, Dr. Curtis Hudson wrote just a little booklet. Just a little booklet. And the title of that booklet is Why I Disagree with All Five Points of Calvinism. You ought to get, you ought to get yourself one. It's not, it's not long reading. It's not difficult reading. But it explains why we disagree with the five tenets of Calvinism. So I'm, you know, I, I, I'm sitting in class. Well, I must be a Calvinist. But then I start to realize what Calvinists really believe and what they really teach and I said, I'm not a Calvinist. I don't care what you say. I've got to fit into one, two schemes of theology. I don't fit into either one. I'm not a Calvinist. I'm not an Armenian. So for years, when people asked me what I was, I just said, I'm a Bible believer. I believe the Bible. Well, you know, you've got to be Calvinist. You've got to be Armenian. Maybe in your book. Not in mine. I just believe what the Bible says. Because I didn't feel like I felt into either one of systems of theology. And then, you know, my kids went to Pensacola Christian College. All my four children went there and graduated from there. And after spending years in the ministry, I decided I'd go to Pensacola Christian College. And I would take some classes at the seminary. They offered some module classes where you could go and stay in class for a week and, and be further educated. So 
So I decided I was going to do that. So then, in doing that, I met uh, Dr. Dale Johnson. He's not here this afternoon, but he was here this morning. First time I ever met Dr. Johnson. Let me tell you a story on Dr. Johnson. I had actually gone to the college to visit, just to visit. This was before I got involved in taking classes. This was just a visit. I wanted to visit some of the classes, some of the Bible classes, so I could hear for myself what kids from my church was being taught. I wanted to know what the Bible classes were like. So I just took a trip. I went down to Pensacola. I got a, a room in the campus house. And I, I got a list of the classes. And I just started showing up in classes. And I showed up in Dr. Johnson's class on a Tuesday night. It was a Tuesday night class. And, uh, you know, the whole room was filled with students. And I sat in the very back row. And uh, he began his class and he says, Oh, I, I see we have a visitor here tonight. Uh, who are you back there? So I told him who I was. He says, where are you from? I said, Irmo, South Carolina. He said, Irma! Irma! You're from Irma, South Carolina? <laughs> I think his wife's name is Irma, isn't it? Huh? Yes. All right. And so that was my introduction to Dr. Dell Johnson. And later on when the seminary began offering these modules, I decided I was going to go and guess, you know, I got exposed to Dr. Johnson even more. And Dr. Johnson, in one of those seminary classes, used the word biblicist. Biblicist. So I grabbed a hold of that and I said, that's what I am. I'm a biblicist. I'm not a Calvinist. I'm not an Armenian. I'm a biblicist. What's a biblicist? Just someone that takes the Bible as their authority at face value. So if somebody wants to know what you are at Brian Baptist Church, well, maybe I shouldn't say this because I'm not your pastor. Your pastor ought to say it. Just call yourself a biblicist. We're Bible believers. We're Bible believers. We believe the Bible. So we take the Bible to be our authority. Now, it's unfortunate that in the field of theology, people have been forced into claiming one or the other, and they don't realize that you don't have to fit in one or the other. That you can fit into a, a separate system of belief. And that separate system of belief would simply be, I'm a Bible believer. Now, here this afternoon, as we think about the heirs of Calvinism, I want, to, I want to take you down the road of total depravity slash inability. The message, dead but able. Dead but able. And I'll explain what I mean by that. Now, here at Brian Baptist Church, I'm pretty confident that you believe in the total depravity of man. I believe in the total depravity of man. When we use that terminology, the total depravity of man, we are simply saying that we as human beings, because we are fallen creatures, we are children of Adam, sons of Adam, 
Because we're born in sin, if you would please. You know, we're, we're people who are morally corrupt, sinfully evil, and completely defiled by sin. That's what total depravity is. From the top of my head to the bottom of my feet, I'm a defiled sinner. All we like sheep, we have gone astray. See, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to our own. See, God said, go this way, and what have we done? We've gone that way. What does Isaiah 64, 6 say? We're all as an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are as what? Filthy rags. You see, in our flesh, we have nothing good in our flesh. That's why the Apostle Paul said in Romans chapter 8 and verse 8, so then in our flesh, we cannot please God. Why? Because we're depraved. We are fallen, sinful creatures. And remember the struggle he wrote about in, in Romans chapter 7? He says, you know, I have a desire, and I'm paraphrasing, I'm putting it in my own words. I have a desire to do what is right, but the power to perform it, I find not. He was just describing the depravity of man. He was describing the, the fallen sinfulness of man. Jeremiah 17.9 Our hearts are deceitful and desperately what? Wicked. And the verse asks the question, who can know them? Jeremiah 17.9 Have you ever read the next verse? See, that verse almost leads us, that verse almost leads us to conclude nobody knows the deceitfulness of our heart. You read the next verse. God does. God does. God does. I'm just trying to explain briefly without turning to all the verses. You know, the, the fact that the Bible teaches that we are morally corrupt, that we are sinfully evil, we are completely defiled by sin. Take your Bibles and turn to Psalm 14. Hold your place here in Ephesians. They go with me to Psalm 14. And in the book of Psalms, if you would please, in Psalm 14... We see the Lord looking down from heaven upon man. Psalm 14, if you would please. In Psalm 14, in verse 2, the Bible says this, The Lord looked down from heaven upon the children of men. So God's up in heaven. He's looking down upon the masses of people that He created on the face of the earth. And notice what the Bible says here. God's looking upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand and seek God. So He's looking down here and He says, Is there anyone down there that understands Me? Is there anyone down there that is seeking after me? And look at his conclusion in verse 3. He says they are... What's the word? All. all. They are all gone how? Aside. They are... Here's the word again. They are what? All together become what? Filthy. There is none that... No, not... Does that verse remind you of a verse in the book of uh, Romans? Remember Romans chapter 3 and verse 12? There's none that doeth good. No, not. No, not one. Now, we have to understand that as God is describing mankind, mankind whom He created, mankind whom He loves so dearly, that God is not looking through the eyes of men. That's how we look. See, we look through the eyes of men. And as we look through the eyes of men, 
We look at folks and say, you know, this guy's a pretty good guy. But this guy here, <laughs> and whose standard are we delving on? Our standard. Correct? These people aren't so bad, but those people over there, boy, they're really corrupt. They're really evil. But God doesn't look through human eyes. God looks through His eyes, which are holy, righteous, and just. And He looks down upon all of us he sees us all defiled and tainted by sin. From the top of my head to the bottom of my feet, I have been defiled by sin. That's why it is absolutely essential that I am born again and that you are born again. Except the man be born again, he'll never see the kingdom of God. And what demands us having that spiritual birth from above? It's the fact that in our condition right here, we're depraved. It's not that it's not old not not that old nature. You know, some folks today, liberal theologians, say there's a little spark of goodness in everybody. You just need to fan it. And you get it fanned, it'll start coming out. But you know what? I need a bigger fan. And it's still not coming out, is it? What does Mark chapter 7 say? Within the heart of man. It's not that on the outside that there's a man that defiles him. It's what's on the inside, what comes out of the heart. Discern it real quickly and look at it. Mark chapter 7, I believe it is. In Mark chapter 7, just look at this real briefly with me. And stay with me because I'm, I'm going somewhere with this. I'm just sort of laying a foundation. I, I like to lay foundations and I like to build upon them. And in Mark chapter 7, if you would please, in Mark chapter 7, notice what the Lord Jesus Christ says. In Mark chapter 7, in verse 20, we'll just start in verse 20. Sometime you read the preceding verses, but we'll start in 20 this afternoon. And he said, Jesus said, That which cometh out of the man, that defiles the man. So what defiles us? What's coming out of us. So it goes on to say, For from within, out of the heart of men. Now look what comes out of the heart of men. Proceed, evil what? Thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, theft, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lasciviousness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. Is that not a whole host of ugly things? It is, isn't it? And in verse 23, it says, all these evil things come from where? Within, and they defile the man. And why are they coming from within the heart of man? Because we're depraved creatures. We're fallen, sinful, depraved creatures. Now, when the Bible speaks about all these things coming out of the heart of man, I hope you understand, the, the Bible's not saying that, that we're all guilty of committing all those things. What the Bible is saying is that we have a heart that is capable of committing all those things. But as God's children, aren't we glad we got a new man within us? If any man be in Christ, he's a new what? 
a new creature. Literally a new creation. We've been born again of the Spirit of God. We have the Holy Spirit of God living inside of us who can give us the power to experience victory over sin. So if we live a life that is better than that, it's not because of our flesh. Because our flesh has gotten any better. Because when we get saved, our flesh doesn't get any better. It's still evil. It's still corrupt. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary one to the other so that you would not do the things that you would. In other words, you've got a desire to do what's right. And how often do you find yourself doing the opposite? And why am I doing that? Because I'm not saved? No, you're doing it because you have a sinful nature. It's part of man's depravity. Are you with me thus far? Alright. Let's go back to Ephesians 2. Ephesians chapter 2. Part of man's depravity is found in the thought here in Ephesians chapter 2 that we are dead. That we are dead. Notice Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1. The verse says this. In Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1, it says, And you hath He, Jesus, quickened. The word quickened means to be made alive. And it says we were quickened who were in trespasses and sins. The Apostle Paul, through inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is writing to the believers at the church of Ephesus. He's reminding them of their lives before they came to know Christ as their Savior. Before you came to know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, you were dead. You were dead in trespasses and sins. In fact, he brings out that thought of being dead twice in this passage of Scripture. Look down in verse 5, if you would please. In verse 5 he says, even when we, he includes himself, we were what? Even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ, by grace are you saved. So here the Bible's pointing out that before our salvation, we are people who are not only depraved, but because we're depraved, we're dead in trespasses and sins. That was our condition before we accepted Christ, before we were born again, before Christ infused life into us. Dead in trespasses and sins. Now, the title of our message here this afternoon is Dead But Able. Dead But Able. When the Bible speaks about us being dead in trespasses and sins, it means two things. And you've got to get these two things down. Number one, it means we were void of life. We were void of life. You see, before we accept the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior, we had physical life, but we had no spiritual life. Are you following me? We had physical life, but we had no what? Spiritual life. Do you understand that when I was, when I was lost, back before I accepted Christ as a 16-year-old teenager, I was a walking dead man? Physically, I had life. Or I wouldn't have been walking. Right? But I had no life in me. I had no, I had no spiritual life in me. So when the Bible says we're dead in our trespasses and sins, first of all, it means we're void of life. We have no life within. We've got physical life, yes. But we have no spiritual life. Why don't we have spiritual life? Because spiritual life comes from Christ. 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5. Hold your place in Ephesians. And go with me to 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5. You say, Brother Chris, you're making us turn. Amen. Want you to see what the Bible says. And you're making us think. Amen. It's a good thing to think. 
And I tell you, if you don't think, it'll get you in trouble. If you let other people do your thinking for you, you will end up in error. That's right. Satan wants to take you down the path of error. So if you let other people do your thinking for you, you're going to get in real trouble. We need to be people who think. And we need to be people, you know, sometimes you hear this, you need to think critically. I think we need to think biblically. Biblically. And in 1 John chapter 5, notice what the Bible says. In 1 John chapter 5, wonderful passage of Scripture, is it not? 1 John 5.13 is such a wonderful verse. It's God's guarantee to us of how we know we have eternal life. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God that you may hope that you have eternal life. And then say that. These things are written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God that you may hope or wish or say maybe you have eternal life. No, no, no. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God that ye may, church, know that you have eternal life. Now, how do we know that we have eternal life? Verse 11. Look at it, please. Verse 11. Verse 11 says this, And this is the record, this is the record, that God hath, God hath what? Given to us what? Eternal life. Keep it in your, your mind. What has God given to us? Eternal life. Now look at what the verse says. And this life is where? In His Son. Now before we're saved, do we have the Son? So therefore, do we have life? Only physical. Weren't we all before we accepted the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior? Walking dead men? See, we didn't have life. Why? Because we didn't have Christ. Where is life found? In the person of Jesus Christ. What did He say in, in John chapter 10 and verse 10? I am come that ye might have life and that ye might have it more what? Abundantly. So without Christ, we don't have life. No spiritual life. That's what it means to be dead in your trespasses and sins. It means to be void of life. You have no spiritual life within. Why? Because you don't have Christ. Look what verse 12 says. In 1 John chapter 5, verse 12, verse 12 goes on to say this. Alright, he that hath the Son, have you accepted Jesus your Savior? If you've, if you've accepted Jesus your Savior, he that hath the Son hath what? Life. So the moment I accepted the Lord Jesus Christ as a 16-year-old teenager... At that moment, this dead man became alive. Isn't that what Ephesians 2.1 says? And you hath he quickened, made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins. Before I accepted Christ, I had no life at all. I had no spiritual life at all. He that has the Son has life. He that has not the Son of God, they don't have what? Isn't that what the verse says? Look at it now. Look what the verse says. Verse 12, you've got to get this down. He that has the Son hath what? And he that hath not the Son of God hath not what? Life. So to be dead in our trespasses and sins, first of all, means that we are void of life. Jesus in John 6.35 is called the bread of life. In John 6.47 He says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that believeth on Me hath everlasting life. So when we have Christ, we have life. So to be dead, to be dead in our sins, means to be void of life. We had no spiritual life. Had physical life, no spiritual life. But listen to me very carefully. Being dead in our sins not only means to be void of life, it also means to be separated from God. To be separated from God. You see, what does our sin do? It separates us from God. I think you're familiar with this passage of Scripture, so now I'll turn there this afternoon. But think about it in Genesis chapter 3. Remember Genesis chapter 2, verse 
verse 17, God had warned Adam not to partake of the forbidden fruit. He said, For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Then we come to Genesis chapter 3. Do you understand? We don't know how long it was between God gave the command and when Adam and Eve disobeyed God. We don't know how long they lived in the garden before they disobeyed. It could have been a short period of time. It could have been a long period of time. We don't know. Because God doesn't tell us. He just gave him the warning. Then you come to Genesis chapter 3. You've got certain the serpent uh, talking to Eve, feeding her a lie, causing her to doubt God. By the way, Satan always loves to put a question mark where God puts a period. He wants you to question the Word of God rather than accepting the Word of God. We have no reason to question the Word of God. God is true. God is a God of truth. God never lies. He always tells the truth and He always keeps His promises. Satan wants us to doubt. Satan succeeded in getting Eve to doubt God. She was convinced, hey, God's not being good to us. God's not being fair to us. God's holding something back. You know, uh, my friend the serpent said to me, They're having conversations. Isn't that what it says? It does, doesn't it? And he convinced her that God was just holding some things from her. You know, sort of like the attitude that sometimes teenagers develop. You know, God's just sort of mean. He won't let me do these things because he doesn't want me to be happy. Instead of realizing if God gives restrictions upon your life, they're there because He wants you to be happy. And disobedience to God never makes any of us happy. There's no such thing as a happy, disobedient child. If you are a child of God and you're disobedient to God, you're going to be miserable. We just need to listen to God, don't we? And obey God. Well, we know what happened. Satan finally convinced her. How long was this dialogue going on? I'm not sure. I don't think Eve partook of the forbidden fruit the first time Satan talked to her. I think he won her friendship. He definitely won her confidence. Did he not? But we can't say because the Bible doesn't say. And so when the Bible doesn't say, the safest thing to say is not to say. But somewhere along the way, she partook of that fruit and she gave to her husband. Isn't that what it says? She gave to her husband and he also did eat. Correct? Sent it into the what? World. And now their eyes are open. They know good from evil. Isn't that what the Bible says? And God comes down in the coolness of the day to have fellowship with them like He had always had. What are they doing? We don't want to see Him. Why? Yeah, they're now spiritually dead, aren't they? They're now spiritually separated from God in their sin. They tried their best to make up for it, didn't they? What did they make? Fig leaves. Fig leaves trying to make themselves presentable to God. You understand that's 
the first religion that ever came on the face of the earth? Fig leaf religion? Seriously, you're, you're laughing about it, but seriously. Man's efforts to make himself acceptable to God? See, there's a difference between religion and biblical Christianity. We don't represent religion. People say, I, I don't like religion. I resent religion. I do too. I don't like it either. Because religion is man's efforts to bind himself to God. Religion is man trying to make himself acceptable to God through what he does. Oh, that's fig leaves. That's fig leaf religion. Biblical Christianity is God reaching down to man through His Son, Jesus Christ. See the difference? One, it's man-centered. The other is Christ-centered. And as long as you have a man-centered religion, you're lost and on your way to hell. We need Christ-centered. So what did God do to remedy this? God didn't accept their fig leaves, did He? No. He clothed them with coats of skin. Well, if God clothed them with coats of skin, what did God do? Where did he get those coats of skin? He had to slay some animals, did he not? And those animals that were slain, were they not an Old Testament type or picture of the coming Lamb of God who would be slain in our place and we would be clothed in His righteousness to make us acceptable to God? But my point is this. When they sinned against God, now they're spiritually dead. At one time, they're walking in harmony with God. They're having fellowship with God in the coolness of the day. God would come down and He would walk with them and talk with them. And now that fellowship's gone. And they're driven out of the Garden of Eden. And remember, there's a division there. Sword placed there. So they couldn't come back. Because now they're spiritually dead. They're not only void of life, they're separated from God in their sin. Look up here and let me use this illustration to try to get this point across. I'm going to let my left hand represent you and I. So what's the hand represent? All of us. I'm going to let my wallet represent our sin. What's the wallet going to represent? Our sin. I'm going to place the wallet on the hand because we all have what? We have all sinned. Now, heaven's perfect. Heaven's without sin. To go to heaven, we would have to be without sin. Are we? No. So we've got sin on us. How are we going to get rid of that sin? Well, God says the wages of sin is what? Death. If we die with our sin never being forgiven, we will die and be eternally separated from God in the everlasting lake of fire. Does God want that to happen? No. He loves us, doesn't He? Letting this hand represent Jesus Christ, He's God who took on flesh. Now look at this. He loves you and I. He loves you and I, but He hates our sin because our sin separates us from Him. That's what it means to be dead. To be dead in your sin means to be void of life and it means to be separated from God. Separated from God in your sin. Now the good news message is that Christ came he took the sin. He paid for it. He was buried and rose again the third day. He removes that division. We're reconciled to God. God no longer sees us separated from Him in our sin. But before we were saved, that's exactly how God saw us. Let's go back to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. 
Stay with us now. Some of you eat turkey and you're taking a little snooze. Alright? Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. That's the danger of, of turkey. Isn't it? I love it. I love turkey. But the danger of eating turkey. There's something in turkey that makes you sleepy. Alright? Some of you need to stand up and do a couple of jumping jacks. Alright? Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. So in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1 it says, And you have the quickened. You're getting, you're getting quiet on me now. Who were what? Dead in trespasses and sin. Thank you so much. Verse 2. We're in times past before you got saved. You walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of? So before we were saved, we were dead in our sins. We were children of what? Disobedience. And then when we come down to verse 3, it says, among whom also we all, we all had our conversation, our manner of life, in times past, in the desires of the flesh, and of the mind, and the Bible says, and were by what? Nature the children of wrath, even as others. Do you realize that we are sinners by our very nature? By our very nature. By our very nature. Why does a dog bark? Because it's a dog. This is deep theological questions. Why does a cat go meow? Because it wants to irritate you to death. Why does a duck go quack? Because it's a duck. Right? The dog's nature is to fart. The cat's nature is to? And the duck's nature is to? Man, you've gone quacky in this church. And a sinner's nature is to? It's not real hard to sin, is it? seems to come real easy to us, doesn't it? Because it's part of our flesh nature. So he's writing back to the Ephesians believers. He's reminding them of what their life was like before they were saved. And we come to the next verse, which is wonderful. Because the next verse begins with two words that changes it all. What are those two words, church? But God. But God. The God who is what? Rich in mercy. But this God who is rich in mercy for His great love wherewith He loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace we have been what? Saved. And what a wonderful salvation that is. So when the Bible speaks about us as being people who were dead, two things that you need to understand. When we were dead before our salvation, we were void of life. We had no life because we didn't have Christ. That's where life is found. And we also were separated from God in our sins. Now that's what the Bible means by being dead. The Calvinist has a whole total different definition of what it means to be dead. The Calvinist believes that to be dead is to be dead like a stone. I should have, Lewis, had you pick me up a rock while you're outside. Dead like a stone. That would have been, you know, I could have held it up and that would have been a great illustration. Stone! Dead! 
just like Lewis brought in the church. Or, not only to be dead like a stone, but to be dead like a corpse. I don't want you to pick one of those up for me, Lewis. But let's pretend. Can we pretend? Let's pretend. Let's pretend, and this is only pretense, only pretending, Pastor Lane dies. He's still alive. Don't worry. Let's, let's pretend that Pastor Lane dies. Don't do a long hair, brother. Please. But he dies. Two or three days from now, what do we do? We meet down at the funeral home. Because before we bury him, we're going, to have a, we're going to have a viewing, aren't we? I don't know what they call it here in Tennessee. We call it viewing in South Carolina. Different places call it different things. And so we all, we all meet down at the funeral home for the viewing. Mrs. Lang's going to be there with all the kids and we're going to try to comfort them as best we can because Pastor Lang has died. And we, we go in there and his body is laying in that casket and we get in there and his hair is messed up. His hair is messed up. And we say, Pastor Lang, all these people are coming to look at you. Your hair can't be messed up. You need to get your comb out and comb your hair. How many of you think he's going to comb his hair? He's not, is he? They didn't put a smile on his face. So they passed the lane. You've got to be smiling when the folks come through here. You know, glory. That will be glory for me. You're in glory. You're seeing Jesus. You're supposed to be happy. Smile. Will his face change? No. Because he's what? He's dead. He's dead. He's dead. You see, the Calvinist believes that lost men are dead like a corpse or dead like a stone. Now follow me very carefully, please, because this is very important for you to get. In their thinking, in their way of teaching, in their theology, you are so dead, dead like a stone or dead like a corpse, so that you cannot believe the Gospel. It's not total depravity that they believe. It is total inability that they believe. You don't have the ability to even accept Christ even if you wanted to. Because you're dead like a stone or dead like a corpse. You see, they believe that God sovereignly must infuse life into you. Now, their teaching leads to two great errors. And we'll, we'll give you these and then we'll be done. Because you've got to understand this and you've got to get this. Two great errors. The first error that they embrace because of the wrong view of what it means to be dead in our trespasses and sins is that they believe that regeneration precedes faith. Regeneration precedes faith. You must be regenerated from God. You're, you're dead like a corpse. You're dead like a stone. You can't believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. 
The only way you can believe on the Lord Jesus Christ is if God brings you life first. Regeneration must precede faith. Now, I'm not making this up. I'm just sharing with you what they themselves say. And let me just quote to you three Calvinistic writers. First, R.C. Sproul. A cardinal point of Reformed theology is the maxim. Regeneration precedes faith. I'm quoting his words. I'm not paraphrasing. I'm quoting his writings. The maxim. Regeneration precedes faith. J.I. Packer wrote, without regeneration there is no faith in the Redeemer. And there, therefore no benefit from His death. We are impotent without power or ability to turn to Christ in repentance and faith. Part of the effect of regeneration, however, is that faith dawns in our hearts. In other words, if God regenerates you, then you can have faith. But you can't have faith until God regenerates you. And then John MacArthur said simply this, regeneration logically must initiate faith. In other words, he's saying regeneration has got to come before faith. Logically, he says, it initiates faith. It only, it only initiates faith logically if you are consumed in Reformed theology. Which I've tried to explain to some of you who've asked me some questions. You know, somebody came up to me and said, well, you know, uh, you're telling us what you're explaining what the Bible says, but you know what about the Calvinist view of these verses? And it all has to do with the fact that they look at the verses through the lenses of their theology. In other words, they superimpose their view upon the Scripture. Like I said this morning in First Timothy chapter two, God wants all men to be what saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. You say, well, how do they get their false theology in there. When they read all men, to them, it's all men who are part of the elect. But does it say that? No. What does it say? It says all men. All men. And all men means all men. So they're just superimposing their view upon the Scripture instead of allowing the Scripture to determine their view. Does that make sense to you? I hope it makes sense to you. So there's two major errors that come about from their view of total inability. They believe that regeneration precedes faith. Now, how do you refute that from the Word of God? It's very simple. I won't turn there and show you, but I'll walk you through it real quickly. In John chapter 3, Jesus Christ was speaking to a man by Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a, was a ruler of the Jews. He was a Pharisee. And he came to Jesus by night. He was a good man by human terms. He was respected. He was a ruler of the Jews. And he was highly religious. Correct? Pharisee. And Jesus didn't beat around the bush. He got right to the man's need. He said, Nicodemus, except a man be born again, he'll not enter the kingdom of God. Is that not what he said? So what's he saying to Nicodemus? You need a new birth. You need to be regenerated. And Nicodemus said, what are you talking about? What are you talking about? Being born again. Can a man that is old enter to his mother's womb a second time and be born? Second time around. Here I am, Mom. <laughs> no! He just didn't understand. I don't think I would have understood either. 
So what did Jesus do? He went on to explain to Nicodemus. Nicodemus, I'm talking about a birth from above. Except the man be born of the flesh and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I say unto you, ye must be what? Born again. So he's saying, Nicodemus, you need a birth from above. You need to be regenerated. You need to be regenerated of the Spirit of God. Nicodemus still doesn't understand, and he's wondering, how can I be regenerated? And so Jesus says to Nicodemus, Nicodemus, as Moses lifted up that serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have eternal life. Nicodemus, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Do you understand that John 3.16, when it was originally spoken, was spoken in the context of Nicodemus about here's how you get born again. Jesus didn't say you've got to be regenerated so you can believe. He said you believe and you will be regenerated. There's an illustration of a man who was dead in trespasses and sins and he was told to believe. Can dead man believe? Dead but able. Say they believe they're dead but incapable or unable. We believe that we're dead, but we are able. Just like Paul and Silas and the Philippian jailer. Remember the jailer came out and asked those men, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? That's the most important question that anybody could ask anyone on the face of the earth. What do I have to do to be saved? And they said, well, I'm glad you asked. Because we're going to give you a theological treatise on what you must do to be saved. And we want you to understand that you are dead. You are dead like a corpse. You are dead like a stone. And if you want to be saved, first of all, God has to regenerate you. Is that what they said? The man was dead in his sins, was he not? But what was the answer? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be So can a dead man believe and be saved? Yes. But you see, because of the Calvinist's wrong view of what it means to be dead in their trespasses and sin, it introduces them to, to even deeper into false theology. As I said this morning, if you allow a little leaven into your life, if you allow a little air into your life, you are opening the floodgate for more to come in. Galatians 5.9, a little leaven leavens the whole, whole lump. And then the second error, if you would please, is here in Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. In Ephesians chapter 2, down in verse 8, for by grace, we were looking at it in the morning service, for by grace are you saved through what? Faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Very good. You guys are learning quickly. That's great. We keep this up, man, we're going to have a great, great time together. And remember, when we get done this afternoon, we're halfway done the conference. We only have three more messages. So do your best not to miss them. The second error, because they believe that a man is dead like a corpse or dead like a stone, is the fact that they believe that God must give you the faith. God must give you the faith. They wrongly interpret Ephesians 2.8.9. See, Ephesians 2.8.9 says, For by grace are you saved through faith, and, what's the word? No, 
No, your head. And and what? And that. That. That not of yourselves. The Calvinist interpretation of that verse is that they believe that the word that is referring to faith. That faith is that which is not of yourselves. That faith is that which is the gift of God. So they literally believe that God is the one who gives you faith. That the gift of God is faith that God gives you. Now, there's two problems with that. I'll explain that. And we'll look at a couple more verses and be done. The first problem with that is that, and I'm going to, I'm going to give you this real simply, and I don't want to sink anyone in this. In the Greek language in which the Hebrew was written, or, or Hebrew, the New Testament, Greek language in which the Hebrew was written. Isn't that good, huh? Turkey's catching up with me. All right? In the Greek language in which the New Testament was written, it's much different than the English language. There are tenses in the Greek language. There's masculine tense. There's feminine tense. And there's neuter tense. And those tenses have to be in agreement. And when you say that the word that is talking about the word faith in the Greek language, you can't say it. Because the tenses don't match. You see, here in Ephesians chapter 2, the word feminine in the Greek are the word faith in the in the Greek is feminine in its in its gender. The word that is neuter in its gender. So the word that cannot be referring to faith because it doesn't match up in its tense. Am I making it clear enough for you? I hope. You know, I I I don't want to give the impression that you have to understand Greek to understand the Bible because you don't. In fact, many people who think they understand Greek are very dangerous with it. It's true, isn't it? It's a very difficult language. You know, I know a little Greek. He runs a restaurant down the street. Just understand that you have to have agreement in the tenses. And if, if, if the word that was speaking about faith, it would have to be in the same tense that the word faith is. But it's not. So that cannot be referring to faith. So what is that talking about? That not of yourselves. That being a gift of, of, of God. If it's not talking about faith, what's it talking about? The broader context of Ephesians chapter 2. What is the broader context of Ephesians chapter 2? What has Paul been reminding those people about? Their condition before they were what? Saved. And then he begins to say, but God, but God who is rich in what? Mercy. He reached down and He saved us by grace through His Son. What is not of ourselves? Salvation. What is the gift of God? Salvation. And isn't that the broader context of the Bible? Is not the broader context of the Bible. You don't, you don't look in the Bible and see faith as being the gift of God. In the Bible? What do you see as being the gift of God in the Bible? Salvation. John chapter 4 and verse 10. Take your Bibles. Let's go there quickly. 
John chapter 4, verse 10. See, the broader context of the Bible is not that faith is the gift of God. Salvation is the gift of God. And in John chapter 4, look here if you would please. In the Gospel of John, in John chapter 4, remember Jesus was talking to the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4. He was talking to her about living water. And He makes this amazing and thrilling statement, if you would please, in John chapter 4, in verse 10. He said, Jesus answered and said unto her, If thou knewest the gift of God... So He's saying to this lady, Hey lady! If you knew what the gift of God was, and who it is that saith to thee, Give me to drink. Thou wouldest ask of Him, and He would have given thee what? Living water. He's saying two things to her. If you understood what it was, lady, that I was trying to give you, I'm trying to give you living water. I'm trying to give you salvation. I'm trying to give you everlasting life. If you understood exactly what it was I was offering to you, and who it is that's speaking to you, the one who is the very source of that salvation. The one and the only one that has the power and ability to give it. You would have asked and I would have given you living water. You see, in the context of the Bible, it's salvation that's the gift of God. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Couldn't be any clearer, could you? The gift of God is what? Eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Remember Revelation 22:17 this morning? The bride and the Spirit say, Come, let him that is a thirst say, Come, whosoever will, let him come and do what? Take of the water of life out freely. In the context of the Bible, it is salvation that's always spoken of as the gift of God. We won't turn there, but in Romans chapter 5, you get your Bible out and you read it later, starting around verses 16, 17, 18, somewhere in there. And you're going to see about a half dozen times in Romans chapter 5, it refers to justification, which is another doctrinal truth dealing with our salvation. And over and over again, about a half dozen times, it's going to speak of the fact that our salvation is a gift. Not only is it going to tell you in Romans chapter 5 that it's a gift, it's going to tell you it is a free gift. Because the price has been paid. Christ is a propitiation. It's free to us. It cost Jesus His life. So we are dead, but we are able. We're able. And if you embrace their theology, you'll begin to think you're dead and unable. And you'll begin to think that you have to have regeneration before faith. And you'll begin to believe that faith must be given to you by God. And that's not true. Romans 4, 5 says this, But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith, the person who believes on Jesus to justify the ungodly, his faith, that person's faith, not God's faith. That person's faith. You see, if God gave us the faith to be saved, whose faith would it be that brought salvation? God's. It's our faith. It's us believing God. It's us trusting in Christ. His faith is counted for salvation. 
And in 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9, it says, Receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your soul. And in Romans chapter 4, the big deal of Romans chapter 4 is that Abraham was a man of faith. Abraham was a man of faith. Not because God gave him faith. God gave him His Word. And Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. Let's look at two more verses then we'll be done. And you all have been very, very good today and I appreciate it ever so much. Romans chapter 16, if you would please. You have listened very well. Hey, you young people, God bless you. You're doing a great job following along your Bibles, paying attention, using your heads. That is wonderful. That is wonderful. Thank you so much. And, uh, you know, if we want to buy a bus here while I'm here and just take you all back to South Carolina, you all come, all right? Romans chapter 16. Romans chapter 16. I love children. I love young people. You're the future of our churches. And we thank God for you. Romans chapter 16. Some, some folks fuss. You know, you get the kids around the church and, you know, sometimes they, you know, they're not well behaved as they ought to be because mom and dad's not close by. And they go run through the church and some of the senior saints, you know, seasoned saints, what do you want to say? They fuss. Oh, the kids will run through the church. You know, I'd rather have them run through the church and not be here. And I don't believe in running the church. Don't get me wrong. I think when we come to where we're going to worship the Lord, we ought to be serious. And we ought to be respectful. But thank God for the kids. Because they're the future. They're the leaders of this church in the future. Not now, but in the future. And they're the future of American Christianity. Generation right now is not doing too good. But if God can raise up a newer generation that has some conviction and some fervency and some zeal and total dedication to God, I'm talking about total dedication to God. I'm not talking about playing around, but total dedication to God, something can be done in this nation for the glory of God. In Romans chapter 16, look in your Bibles if you would please. In Romans chapter 16, in verses 17 and 18, the Bible says this, What is our attitude to be toward those who are teaching things that we know are wrong? Look what the Scripture says. In Romans chapter 16 and verse 17, the Bible says, Now I beseech you, brethren, the Bible says we are to do what? Mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you have learned. And the Bible says we are to do what? Avoid them. Two words you ought to circle in your Bible there. Mark and avoid. Mark and avoid. What attitude and what action does God want us to have toward those who teach us false doctrine? He says we are to mark them and we are to what? Avoid them. For they that are such, the Bible says, they're not serving our Lord Jesus Christ. They may be talking about Jesus all day long, but they're not serving our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? They're serving their own belly. They've got their own selfish things they're trying to achieve because they're introducing their own doctrines. By good words and fair speeches, the Bible says they deceive the hearts of the innocent. Now, when the Bible says to mark and avoid, that word mark means to take aim at. Where I grew up in southern Illinois, there, was, there, there wasn't much deer hunting that took place. Southern Illinois, six days of deer hunting a year. Where I live, it starts August 15th and goes through January 1st. And we still got more deer than any state deserves. But up where I grew up, six days out of the year. And my daddy forbid us to be in the woods during deer season. Because we had guys that came down from Chicago to hunt deer. They didn't know what a deer looked like. 
I kid you not. Have some of these highfalutin fellows from Chicago come down. They shoot some farmer's cow. Drag it into the waste station. Thinking we got a deer. Because you had to weigh all your deer in in Illinois. Had to bring it in. You shot it. You had to bring it in and officially have it weighed in. They were really in trouble. So my daddy said, deer season? Yeah, out of the woods. You stay out of the woods. So we never got deer hunting. But we sure got into rabbit hunting. Anybody here do rabbit hunting? No? Well, we do rabbit hunting. And uh, old, old Conjure lived four houses down from me. He taught me how to find rabbits sitting. I'm not a good shot when something's running. If it's running, it's a waste of bullet to pull the trigger. I'm not going to hit it. But if it's sitting, I can get it. So he used to teach me how to walk through the fields and be looking for the rabbits that were sitting in the clump of fescue. He said, now when you, when you find that rabbit, he said, don't just haul off and shoot it. He says, you want, to find its, you want to find its head. That's your target. You want to take aim at it. That's your mark. Mark those. Take aim at it. Don't be afraid to speak up and say, John MacArthur, America's premier teacher, he teaches Lordship Salvation. He believes in Calvinism. John Piper, leading thousands of college students across this nation into error. He teaches error. He teaches Calvinism. R.V. Sproul, R.C. Sproul, oh yeah, he's the guru of Reformed theology in America. That's not right. Take aim at it. Don't be afraid to call it what it is. If it's truth, it's truth. If it's error, it's error. Take aim at it. Identify it. Identify it. And then what are we to do? What to say? Avoid it. Avoid it. That word avoid means to go out of your way to avoid. Is there anybody in here that goes out of your way to avoid somebody else in church? Well, if there is, you need to get right with God. It's not a right attitude. I'm glad to see the husband hugging his wife. Not trying to avoid her. But you know what it is in life? Sometimes you just go out of your way to avoid certain people, don't you? And that's what the Bible means with false teachers. Not only do we need to be willing to mark them, to identify them for what they are, we need to be people who don't have the attitude of saying, well, you know, they do teach some good things. You, you do know that, don't you, Brother Lang? You know, Dr. McCarthy, he, he's, he's got other books where he doesn't talk about Calvinism. He's got other books where he doesn't talk about Lordship Salvation. He's, he's got other books that, you know, he covers some really good issues in those books. And John Piper, you know, uh, he really talks about having a fervency for God and the holiness of God. And we were about to sing Holy, Holy, Holy. And boy. But he teaches that which is wrong. And God says, avoid. He doesn't say, chew the chicken off the bone and throw the bone away. Because the problem is, I won't ask you to raise your hand, but how many of you have ever chewed the chicken off the bone and you still wanted more? 
so you chewed on the bone a little bit. So you begin to take the good off the bone and then all of a sudden the bone starts coming your way. You begin to allow it. God says, no, we're not to allow it. We're not to tolerate it. We are to mark it and we are to what? We are to avoid it. That's God's Word. That's not my Word. That's not Pastor Lang's Word. You know, I can't force any of you to do one thing. I can only give you the Word of God and say, 